Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash canadaland to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. We don't criticize journalism as much as we need to in Canada. But we also don't celebrate journalism and journalists as much as we should in this country, even when other countries do. Canadian journalist Connie Walker recently won a Pulitzer and a Peabody. These are perhaps the two highest awards that exist in America for journalism, and barely a peep was made about that up here. Some of you might not even know who she is, which is a problem because Connie Walker is in mid-stride of a brilliant career that, frankly, everybody should know about. Much of that career was spent at the CBC, where she went from hosting Street Sense to founding CBC Aboriginal, now known as CBC Indigenous. She worked for years there as a reporter, fighting to tell Indigenous stories for many years, during which the explicit positions of her bosses was that nobody wanted to hear them. And then she proved them all miserably wrong with her breakout podcast, Missing and Murdered. In a country where the former prime minister did not believe that one inquiry was required to examine over 1,000 cases of missing and murdered indigenous women, Connie Walker dedicated a long-form investigation to just one single case. And in doing so, she separated one human life the life of Alberta Williams, 
from a pile of statistics and deemed this life and its violent conclusion worthy of sustained, methodical, journalistic inquiry. This was a radically humanizing application of journalism. And this was the first investigative true crime podcast the CBC ever produced. And millions of people downloaded it. And that's just one of the firsts that Connie Walker has given our burgeoning podcast industry. For example, her Pulitzer Prize is the first Pulitzer Prize ever awarded to a podcast. But here's the thing. That award was not given to Connie Walker for her work at the CBC. Because for some inexplicable, head-scratching, jaw-dropping reason, CBC lost Connie Walker. And the American podcast company Gimlet quickly scooped her up. And it was for Gimlet that she produced her most personal investigation to date. Stolen, Surviving St. Michael's, an investigation not just into that residential school, but into the residential school priest who abused Connie Walker's own father. I was very pleased to welcome Connie Walker into our studio recently in Toronto to talk with her about her brilliant career so far. And maybe it's obvious, but a warning to listeners that our conversation will touch on residential school abuse, uh, sexual and violent abuse of children. So please listen with care. Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Carolina Hanula, Michael Foster, Deborah English, Colin Tu, Julian Kowalczyk, Eric Bio, Christiane Wilhelmson. And listen, we asked Bruce McCullough from the Kids in the Hall if he thinks Canada is better or worse since Canada Land's been around. Hi, Kid in the Hall Bruce McCullough here. Now, I've been asked recently if I think Canada is better or worse in the 10 years since Canada Land's inception. I think it's worse, much worse, but I will say it's much better than it would be without Canada Land. It's one of the few brave voices that are still left in the journalistic world that are asking tough questions and doing really great stories. So happy 10th anniversary, Canada Land. I mean, the kids in the hall are only at like, what, 40? Listen, the simplest and most accurate message is always the best message. And that would be this. We need you to support us to stay around. Journalism is in a fight for its life. And if people don't support it, we won't have any really soon. We're up against it now like never before. So that's just the bottom line. That's the truth of it. And I think that that's clearer to people than it ever has been in the past. And because of that, we've been able to figure out something here that actually works. Most of the news you hear from the news industry about ourselves is just horrible doom and gloom. And it's all predicated on the idea that, you know, nobody will pay for news. We have actually found something that sustains here and that works just based on giving people a choice. Rather than telling you that we're doomed and we're heading off a cliff, we're actually just figuring it out with you. You know, we're saying like, look, we can't do this without you. Would you like to save this? Do you want to have things like this around? And we've had enough people over the years say yes to that, that we're still around. But not enough. And that is also the simple truth of it. We need a lot more people to become supporters to ensure that we can stick around and to do more. 
And what we do every year for a month is we do as much as we can. We show you everything we can do so that we're proving it, you know, so that we're showing you if you make us strong, if you become a supporter, here is what we're capable of. And so you're getting our best work this month. So I could just end this there and keep it as simple and straightforward as possible because I know that that is the primary reason why people support us. But there is more to it than that because we have made it our business to make it as gratifying and feel as good and have as much value as possible to become a supporter. Again, the main thing is you're keeping journalism alive, but we've really examined the question, what else can we do? We don't want to do what a lot of just purely kind of commercial podcast operations have done, which is to say, you know, the Monday show is free, the Thursday show you got to pay for, you know, the really explosive show with the big guests, that one you got to pay for, because that's not really our model and it's not why people fund us. People fund us so that everybody can get this. If you're listening to this, you're one of the people who doesn't support us. The people who fund us want you to listen to this, and we don't want to ever put our news content behind a paywall. But what we have been doing bit by bit incrementally is making our supporter program exceptionally great. And that means a bunch of stuff. It means that you get early access and sometimes free access to our live events. This week in Toronto, we are doing a live event. We are kicking off the Hot Docs Podcast Festival. Our event is selling out faster than anything else in this entire festival. And I'll be on stage getting grilled by Jan Wong and celebrating 10 years of Candleland with my colleagues. And our supporters get special access to that. We have content that is just for our supporters. And you'll hear a little taste of that at the end of today's episode. So make sure you stay tuned for that. We have merchandise that only our supporters can get. Our incredible documentary series, Commons, comes out early for supporters. You can listen to it first. When we do new deep dive investigations, our supporters get that all at once. They can binge it if they want to. They hear that information. They hear those shows before anybody else. We have a newsletter that only goes to our supporters. We have meet and greets across this country. The backbench was just in the Yukon where we get together with our supporters and raise a glass, have a drink, have a chat. We want to meet you. We want to talk to our supporters because they are fueling what we do. And of course, our supporters get ad-free access to all of our podcasts. I want to ask you right now to hit pause and go have a look at canadaland.com slash join to see all of the perks, to go have a look at the merchandise, to go have a look at how good we've made it to become a supporter. It is amazing and unique that we're able to just swim against the tides and prove that it's not true that Canadians won't pay for journalism. But it is also frustrating because most people, like the overwhelming majority of people who listen to this, don't support us. And I think a lot of people, because they just consider podcasts free, they just, some of them even listen to this message and it's like, oh yeah, but I'm not going to do that. And if we were able to just get one in 10 of you right now to do this, we would double our paid support. If we did better than that, if we got two or three out of 10, we would be hitting our goals and we would be able to do so much more. We wouldn't just be securing what we're doing here against all of the threats that we're up against, but we would be able to tell so many more stories. We need you to do this. Please hit pause, go to canadaland.com slash join or hit the link in the show notes. Become a supporter of Canada Land. Check out Common's new series on cults before anybody else. And we're just going to be putting out extra stuff and early stuff throughout the year just for our supporters. Canadaland.com slash join. Thank you. I think that the only way to start is with like a hearty congratulations. Like you are in the midst of like one of the all-time runs. <laughs> 
Really? <laughs> like your four series in, like by any measure, triumph after triumph. Oh, thank you. I'm, I, I don't I do this often, but like um, – I think, you know, there's different ways people can parse this and be like, oh, Canadian journalist wins a Pulitzer or indigenous journalist wins a Pulitzer. I just think, like, for the medium, are you the first podcaster to win a Pulitzer? No, they've had an audio reporting I know, but it was radio shows before. Like, This American Life is, like, podcast first. Oh, I don't know. I'm not sure about that, honestly. I think that we were, like, the one thing I do remember is that we were the first podcast to win— a Pulitzer and a Peabody in the same year. Yes. Those are the two big ones. I think you might be the first podcaster podcaster, which is like covering our medium in glory. I feel like having been a Canadian journalist for 20 years, I never thought about the Pulitzers, really. Like, yeah. I didn't actually feel like it was within the realm of possibility. No, there's a very short list. I spoke to Paul Watson, who is a, the only other Canadian I'm aware of having ever won a Pulitzer. Oh, there, wow. there may be others somewhere in history. You're on, like, a bunch of very short lists. (laughs) Great. Amazing. I feel like because it was such a personal story, because it was, like, this podcast about my family and my dad, you know, it's taken this long to really be able to look back and kind of take stock of what we did and what we accomplished with that podcast beyond awards and just in terms of, of the story that we told. Well, the story itself is such heavy material and it's such personal material and when you're immersed in something for that long, I don't know. I just imagine that so many of the feelings around it, even when the show is is a critical success and a rating success, it's just hard to feel anything celebratory. Yeah. But that's, you know, warranted. These are the dynamics in telling these stories is that yeah. we, we are trying to have successes and, and, t- and tell them in ways that we can feel proud of our work. But, like, uh, it's pretty hard to celebrate. I mean, talking about the story itself, and maybe we'll, we'll start with Surviving St. Michael's, like— sure. You brought one of the most painful and electric and awkward and difficult moments in memory and podcasting in the moment when you confront this old man who almost certainly abused your own father and and many other members of your family and it's the end of an investigation or, or it's, it's the goal of the investigation to finally have some accountability and put these questions to this person. This whole thing started because my brother Hal shared that post about my dad and about my dad beating up a priest that had abused him in residential school. We've talked to so many people and heard about so many priests. Um, but he was the first one that we heard about who was abusive to kids. And... I don't know. I want to go and ask him, and I want to ask him about the allegations that he abused my dad's brothers, Ivan and Harris. So all we can do is go and ask. Mm -hmm. When you finally are face-to-face with a perpetrator, it's a vulnerable, adult, old man. And the moment is requiring you to show a generosity and a kindness that he never showed to the children in in his care. There's so much going on in that moment. And you as a, as a journalist, but also as the daughter of a victim. What about sexual abuse? No, just I never had... 
Because my uncle Harris said that you sexually abused him. Who? Yeshua? Yes. What did I do? I don't recall that. He says he was sexually abused by you. I don't remember that. And my other, my dad's other brother, Ivan, said you you sexually abused him as well. Well, this was not my style. I don't understand it. It was not my style to abuse kids sexually. It wasn't your style. I was not. I was not. I, it was not in, in my way of life. Well, why would why would they accuse you if if you if you didn't hurt them? I don't know if they were. I never heard they were. I was accused about it. That's the first time I hear about it. Can you just talk about what that required of you and what that was like to try to navigate that moment? Yeah, I mean that was awful. It was terrible. It was like a horrible experience. But I, I think that, like, it, it's – you're not feeling anything in the moment because you're, you, you just have to be there and you're doing it. Maybe people get used to doing those kinds of interviews, but I certainly never have. And I think that there had to be a disconnect between the really deeply personal questions I was asking him about my family members that he was accused of, of abusing when they were children at St. Michael's. And how I felt in that moment, because, like, I, I just couldn't kind of be both people at, at, in sitting across from him, you know. I, I had to really feel like I kind of detached and just was there to ask the questions. Yeah. And, and then I think once you're there, you know, you just kind of have to – you just have to do it, you know. I just feel like it was a long time after that I even wanted to, like, revisit that conversation in any way. It was like we weren't sure if we were going to include it in the podcast for a long time. And then when I did eventually listen to it again, like, it was like listening to it for the first time as somebody who had never heard those words before because it was just such a surreal thing in the moment. Did you ever witness other people abusing children? Maybe one time I saw that, but... uh... What did you see? What that abuse is, is all about. What is it? Sexually, mostly. Did you see someone sexually abusing a child? Uh, yes, of course. Who did you see? Who was it? Well, I cannot name because I don't want to put them down. Well, why not? Because it's not my style to put people down. What about the children who were hurt? Yeah, well, then I can speak to them, yes, and then be sorry about it. I think that, like, when I heard the story of my father being abused by a priest, um, you know, I felt so many things in that moment, like, just obviously, like, pain and heartbreak for what he went through as a kid, but also, like, this understanding. I was like, oh, this makes sense in some ways in terms of what I experienced and what he experienced in his life. And I was interested in learning more, like, because even though it was difficult, there was some relief for understanding, or the understanding that came with it brought some relief. And I feel like every step, including, like, going to interview Gilles Gauthier, the priest, was, like, another step of that understanding. And so ultimately, like, I can look back on it and feel, like, glad that it happened, but also still not sure, like what to take from it, besides anger, (laughs) you know, really, honestly. 
I'm just left with this feeling of anger and frustration that it's taken this long. Mm -hmm. That it's like it, it had to be an interview when he was 89 years old. Like, you know, why wasn't he ever at, like he clearly didn't mind the spotlight. He clearly didn't mind talking to journalists. We found interviews where he bragged about his time at St. Michael's, bragged about his work as a priest. Um, and as far as we know, like he was never held accountable for, for any of the credible allegations against him. Can you talk about the actual investigative process that led – and I feel like that was so crucial for that moment. You know, when I was learning how to make radio at CBC, I was taught about like light and heat. That moment had so much heat, but the light, that the facts as to what we can solidly say, you and your team did get records. Yeah, the interview happened before we got records or confirmation from the Oblates that he was credibly accused of abusing kids. Uh, while he was working in residential schools and adjacent to residential schools. Can we get geeky and just talk about, like, the actual process? Because at first sure. the, the Oblates were completely stonewalling. I think when we first reached out to them about Gilles Gauthier specifically, we heard from Ken Thorson, Father Ken Thorson, who's the, the head of the Oblates in Canada. And he, you know, expressed... Concern and condolences about my father and his experience. Um, and when we had asked specifically about Gilles Gauthier, he said that, you know, he was unaware of any allegations um, made against him. And when we when we followed up and sent another email, I remember he said, you know, he's asked around to other oblates and nobody has heard of any allegations against Gauthier. And then when we found one of the pre-settlement lawsuits where he was named as the abuser of, of my dad's brother, my uncle Ivan. And the lawsuit detailed, you know, it was just incredible detail, the kind of abuse and the scope of the abuse and how long it went on. It's really devastating, honestly, to to read that. Um, we we shared that with, with Father Ken Thorson. Mm -hmm. And then he wrote back and said, upon... Review of our files, we found 14 allegations, I believe it was, of credible abuse allegations against Gilles Gauthier. This is a common thing in investigations. For so we never, we're not aware of anything, and then you independently find the evidence, and then all of a sudden he magically discovers these other allegations. Yeah. What's important for me to also point out is that, you know, we heard about him specifically, that specific priest, in one of the very first interviews that we did with my family members. Like, he was known in our family to have abused my uncle. Mm -hmm. And then we started, you know, once we realized that this story was bigger than my dad, this was bigger than even my family, that there were hundreds and hundreds of kids who went to St. Michael's over 100 years. Um, and all of, you know, they're still alive and living in, in our communities and surrounding communities, and their children are, and the intergenerational survivors are. We were like, this, you know, we want to understand as much as we can about this school. And so we started trying to talk to other survivors. And we heard more allegations just in those interviews against this one priest. And we wanted to be able to name as many people as we could who'd been credibly accused of abusing kids at St. Michael's. And that was like a really difficult thing because it's like reporting on historical allegations of abuse is really difficult. Reporting on allegations against children is really difficult. Mm -hmm. And because, you know, so much is still unknown about residential schools and about the abuse that occurred there, like I feel like we have an understanding of 
like the big picture, but in terms of like specific schools and specific people who are at these schools in positions of power with access to vulnerable children, like we don't know their names. We don't really know their names. They, they like there have been very few investigations into abuse at residential school, very few convictions. And most of what has been told through the TRC and, and the settlement process is hidden, is, is not public information. And so it was really important for us to expose as much of it as we could. They were going to destroy these records. Well, they are destroying them. They are going to destroy the IAP records. Can you explain what the IAP is? Yeah, the IAP is the independent assessment process, which is what they called the process where survivors received compensation through the Indian Residential School Settlement. So it was usually a series of hearings where survivors would come and there would be an adjudicator and they would tell their story and explain in detail, like excruciating detail, about the abuse they experienced um, in residential schools. So these records would be of high interest to you in trying to figure out what the heck actually happened, but not available to you. They're all completely uh, private and sealed, and they're going to be destroyed um, in four years. That seems unconscionable. That's something that not enough people know or understand, that the, the most comprehensive documentation of what survivors experienced in residential schools across the country is all in the IAP records, and we're losing it. We're going to lose that history. All of the IAP records are all going to be lost unless survivors come forward and ask for their records to be kept. One at a time, like each record has to be requested by the survivor uh, that that record pertains to. The records are sealed. To geek out for a minute, how did you learn all this and how did you get access to, to what you were able to get access to? Well, we've never been able to access the IEP records. They're but you still went around. Sealed. Well, we didn't go around, but our producer and reporter, Chantal Belrichard, had the idea that, you know, the only reason there was a settlement process to begin with was because survivors in, in the 80s and 90s and, and in the 2000s, started coming forward and individually filing lawsuits against the churches and against the government for what they went through in these schools. And she said, what if we try to find those lawsuits? They're all public record. Mm -hmm. And so she filed an ATIP and was able to get a list of lawsuits that pertain to St. Michael's. And so we visited courthouses across the prairies like Regina, Saskatoon, Edmonton, Prince Albert, and viewed those files. And that's how we were able to find my uncle's lawsuit against the Oblates and the, the government of Canada alleging abuse by Gilles Gauthier and also hundreds of other lawsuits of, of survivors of St. Michael's. 482 civil lawsuits, 20,000 pages of documents spanning 80 years, accusations against 15 staff members, 13 nuns, and 17 priests, accused of sexually abusing students, and the result is, is the most comprehensive documentation of what happened within a residential school. To me, there's a narrative arc to that investigation where I start with these kind of nagging questions of like, is this really like, I get your personal connection to this, but there's like... I'm uncomfortable. Are you settling scores? And like, if there's any doubt about this guy, is this really fair? And then through the course of following that personal thread, what emerges is not just answers about what happened to your family, but the most comprehensive journalistic document of what happened in an institution to hundreds of people. That's so interesting to me, and it challenges certain notions 
about should we be telling stories that we're too close to and and who's the right person to tell stories like like it seemed that without that personal connection none of this would have been un, uh, revealed well it wouldn't necessarily have been revealed but it would have been a different story and it wouldn't it's a much better story it's a much better journalistic investigation because we're transparent about my life and my connections. We hear you wrestling with these things. Yeah. And, yeah. I, I mean, I, I think, like, this idea of objectivity in journalism just feels so dated and frustrating. Because I feel like it's been weaponized against Indigenous journalists and other journalists mm-hmm. of color. That we are seen as advocates if we are telling stories from our own community in the general sense, not even specific community or, or family stories. And I have certainly felt that, like, throughout my career that I've had to kind of push back against this idea that I'm somehow an advocate or an activist instead of a, a journalist. And it was so important, I think, like, with Surviving St. Michael's, that this was an investigation, that this was, like, our journey of trying to expose as much of the truth as we could about this one single school. And... Yeah, one of the most comprehensive, but that to me is so infuriating that it's 20, now 2023, but at the time, 2022, when we were doing this, and this school had been closed since 1997, like, and it's only coming out now? Like, how many stories have we already lost? This is one of over 100 schools across the country. Like, we should be doing this for every single school. This should be happening everywhere. We think we have this understanding of what happened in residential schools, or we think we have this understanding of, like, We know what we need to know, and now we have to get to reconciliation, but we don't, actually. Like, this is proof that we don't actually know everything. This is something that has played out in a lot of different historical atrocities and how we we deal with them. And, you know, I think that how the Holocaust was processed became the template for a lot of things that followed. It was so important to have the records. There are people who say, why are we doing – like, we all agree that this is horrible what happened – do you really need to dig up the name of some decrepit old person? And I think that what, what journalism says is we absolutely do. That's a hard idea to get across to people. I think there is a, a public perception of like, why are we endlessly reliving and dwelling on this and picking on individuals? Like everybody, we've apologized. Like name an individual who's been picked on <laughs> when it comes to resident. Like, have there been people who like have individually been held to account? I mean, if you know them. I think that this truth and reconciliation process differs from historical ones of the past in that that hasn't happened in that level of accountability. I mean, even formally, it was not a part of the Canadian process. I mean, I think that, like, it all has to be looked at in the context of Canada, in the context of Canadian history, in the context of, like, like this one part of Canadian history and how it's actively been suppressed in terms of, like, the knowledge and information about residential schools, but how that fits into the bigger story about Canadian history and the other stories that we don't know or we don't understand. And I think, I mean, when I was at an event, I think it was something The Current did a couple years ago in Ottawa, and Justice Marie Sinclair was there. And he was asked that on a panel. People said, why can't you just get over it? Like, people say that. And he said, you don't say that to Holocaust survivors. Why can't you get over it? You know, I say, why is it so hard for you to remember it? Why is it so hard for you to know it? And I think that's the question. If people feel uncomfortable about, like, oh, we've apologized, and oh, we, we know, we understand, like... Why is it difficult for Canadians to think about it? Like, you know, why do you think? I think it has to do with this larger erasure of Indigenous 
history of indigenous people of of like the impacts of not just residential schools but colonization in Canada and how residential schools was a tool for that in Canada in Saskatchewan like <laughs> very close to St. Michael's you know there's bigger histories there's bigger stories that this is connected to that Canadians don't know and should learn about if they don't know but what's underlying all of that is the racism that still exists and is so prevalent against Indigenous people in Canadian society. Mm-hmm. That is something that colors every story that, that needs to be kind of like dismantled before you can can create connections and understanding. And that And that's something that, you know, I feel like with podcasting, like in terms of a medium, like we have this unique opportunity to kind of break down some of those stereotypes that exist, some of the barriers to understanding and connection. You've worked in pretty much every journalistic medium. Your voice as a podcaster evolves from like a straight news reporter, which Mm -hmm. is what you were, to one that feels like literary nonfiction, where the process side of the, of the journalism is there with internal conversation you're having with yourself about these things and trying to find a voice as a journalist that is inclusive of family history, of, of your pers- your internal moral struggles. Like it, it, it's, it feels like you've found in this medium a way to kind of reflect all of it. Yeah, I mean, that was the big revelation when we did our first podcast for me personally was, you know, I had come from working in mostly TV news, like radio and and digital at CBC. And back then, I think it was 2016, 2017, like everything was just getting smaller and smaller and smaller in terms of the kinds of stories you could tell and how many seconds and minutes you had. And I think that especially when it comes to stories about Indigenous people and Indigenous communities because of the stereotypes, because of the racism, like, you really need time and space to connect the dots. Nobody wants to be force-fed, like, some history that they're not interested in. And I think with the first series, we were able to to tell another story, to tell an engaging narrative story about a woman, Alberta Williams, and the mystery surrounding her unsolved murder On the Highway of Tears. You hear about journalists getting tips from whistleblowers or anonymous sources, brown paper envelopes filled with secret documents. But the tip that sparked this story just showed up in my email one day. The subject said, Alberta Williams murder. Intrigued, I clicked it open. All it said was, she was murdered by... The identity of the person named in that email was just as shocking as the identity of the person who sent it. And I think through the time that we had through that podcast of like getting to know Alberta's sister Claudia and spending significant time with her and the family and really diving as deeply as we could into their lives, even though this, you know, that happened in 1989 to Alberta. We were able to create space for people to have empathy. Like, that that's what it boils down to, I think. Because it's really hard to do that in even, like, eight minutes on The Current or mm-hmm. ten minutes on The National. Like, it's very difficult to to kind of have that space. And podcasting, it's wild to me still that people will, like, put on headphones and listen to a single story over eight episodes. And yeah. like 
hours. Like, it's wild. It's the fucking best. <laughs> I know. It's just the opposite of everything else. Everything getting shorter, everything getting dumber. And then, like, just the way in which, especially when you're dealing with traumatized communities, like, by the fourth headline, you're like, ah, you know. But then you've got this medium where you hear a human voice. Mm-hmm. And each person gets to be a human. And, yeah, a listener will spend 10 hours with a story that they might not have read four paragraphs of. Yeah. Your work reminds me of what I love about our medium. And yet, CBC did not renew your series. Like, you get into podcasting. You do the first series. It's sort of like a side project. Millions of people listen to it. I heard that there was, like, a question of, like, is there going to be another? Well, of course, there's got to be another one. And then your second season comes out. This is a very strange and frustrating story. To have your family member stolen, murdered, then missing. What is the big secret? But to not know anything, not be told anything, and then this child just disappear into thin air? No. Mm -mm. Something's amok. My sister Cleo was 11 years old and remembered where she lived and who loved her. She tried to hitchhike back to Little Pine, back home to the reserve, but was picked up, raped, and murdered, and left by the side of the road. What, what do you do when uh, complete strangers come and grab you? Throw a car? And was it 17 million downloads? I don't even remember, honestly, at this point. But yeah, like it was, it had huge impact. There's only 40 million people in this country. <laughs> I think our audience was mostly in the U.S., honestly. Like we really tapped into. Well, CBC cares about that. Yeah. And this was a blockbuster. It contradicts everything that, you know, well, we'll do these stories now and then because they're good to do, but nobody really cares about. Like it just completely destroyed that. And people are having that level of depth of a, com- of a connection with you and with the story And at a time when podcasting is booming, CBC has this, I think, unexpected huge hit. And then then they did not commission a third season from you. Yeah. Why? Before we even finished Finding Cleo, actually, I was told that, like, there wasn't going to be another podcast in my future. Like, that was it. That it was like, it took too long and it's too expensive. And their focus was on television at the time. And so... You know, I thought once it was a a big success that, you know, it had this big impact and was kind of beyond being, like, I think a really important story about not just Canadian history, but like the 60s scoop and what was happening today, that it was also like, you know, digital and reaching new audiences and hitting all these marks. I thought that would be revisited, but but it wasn't. So eventually when when I realized I wasn't going to be able to focus on podcasting at CBC, I I started looking outside of CBC. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? 
Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. Well, let's actually back up and rewind and talk about your time with CBC. Mm -hmm. And I think for the rest of this interview, I'm just going to ask you questions about Street Sense. (laughs) I actually could. I love Street Sense. Street Sense was amazing. That was such a good show. It was so good. I wish they still had that. I want my kids. They do have – apparently it's digital now. It's only Uh, on TikTok. Okay. Street Sense on TikTok. They did bring it back. But you've talked about your experiences at CBC as an indigenous journalist and like coming really like face-to-face with systemic racism – at the broadcaster. Can we start with like your time as an intern in in, in Halifax? (laughs) Sure. That was my first job. I was an intern on the East Coast in Halifax for CBC Morning. And honestly, like I was a terrible intern. I really had no idea what I was doing. I was really not a great intern, but I was part of the Donaldson Scholarship. So I was there chase producing for the morning show. And so booking guests to come on to talk about whatever was happening in the news. And that summer was was a really big news story on the East Coast was the conflict between the Indigenous and non-Indigenous fishermen in Burnt Church. And I had booked a chief to come on the morning show. It was a Friday, and I booked him on the Monday. And I remember my producer at the time, because probably I was such a terrible intern, like grilling me about the details, like he knows what time and where to go. It was a wall box, like... 6 a.m. or something, Mm -hmm. 7 a.m. And I said, yes, yes, he knows. And she said, because you know those Indians, they'll go out drinking all weekend and they won't show up on a Monday morning. And I remember just like looking around immediately to be like, did anybody else hear that? Like, was anybody, is anybody else paying attention? And that was the first, yeah, that was like, that moment's kind of seared in my... That was said about a chief who you'd booked. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I'm not the only Indigenous person who's worked in newsrooms who has a story like that or or multiple stories like that. Then you find yourself working, booking a a morning show in Toronto. No. I became host of Street Sense. I did that for four years. I moved to Toronto. And then after Street Sense was over, I was working in current affairs at CBC Toronto Uh for CBC News Sunday for many years. Okay. And that's where you had another incident. Yeah, when I was working on CBC News Sunday, I got an email one day, and this was before social media, back when people used to send emails and say, please forward to their entire address book. And I got an email that a girl I knew from back home had gone missing. 
And her name was Amber Redman. And I knew Amber because she was the same age as my sister. And we actually, um, my cousin and I coached her in volleyball at the Saskatchewan Indian Winter Games one year. Uh And her family had like forwarded a picture of her and said that she was missing and asked people to share it as widely as they could. And um, I remember just thinking like, this should be on the news. Like people should be paying attention to this, you know. And that summer, Alicia Ross went missing from Toronto. And that was front page news. That was on on the front page of The Globe and the National Post. And And she was Caucasian. uh... She was white and she was blonde. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, like, these are so similar. Like, they're both these, like, young, beautiful women who have, like, these families who are just desperate for information and help. And they had this, like, bright futures, and they've just vanished. And Amber's case barely got any local coverage, even in Saskatchewan. And and so I, at that time, the show I worked on, we, you know, part of our mandate was to cover media. So I pitched a story, went to pitch a story to my boss about these two cases and, and like, the disparity between the coverage of these two young women who had so many things in common. And she put up her hand and stopped me, like, before I could really get into my pitch and, and said, this isn't another poor Indian story, is it? And that was it. That was kind of, that was the end of it. And I guess those are just really, like, very specific, clear examples of the kind of systemic racism that just permeated newsrooms mm-hmm. and media for, for so long. Like, I think, obviously, that's changed, is changing. But I, I think that doesn't mean that... Something is happening to another Indigenous journalist somewhere right now that we should be paying attention to. I mean, this is why I think scrutinizing the media is worthwhile beyond just, like, specifically criticizing, you know, this news outlet or that one is that it really is a window into, like, what we care about, what we give attention to is always a reflection of what we think people are going to care about. Mm -hmm. And we know that a missing white girl is, like— our perception is like that's huge. That's that's good for clicks. And then there's this uh, other perception of like, oh, roll eyes, another, another missing mm-hmm. indigenous girl. We're this filter through which larger systemic problems kind of get crystallized and visible. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Because look around, who's who's with you in a newsroom? That's the other thing is that it really matters who's making the call. And so I want to ask you about your role in creating what was then called uh, CBC Aboriginal now known as CBC Indigenous. Can you talk about that? Well, I had worked on Eighth Fire right before that, and that was, like, the first time in my career, at least, where there was, like, significant attention and resources put to, like, an Indigenous or Aboriginal project. And that was a documentary series, a four-part documentary series. We were initially supposed to have five episodes, I think, and it was on primetime television, and it was hosted by Wab Canoe when he was still at CBC and it was meant to be like the indigenous side of this 500-year-old history <laughs> of Canada that was inclusive of like indigenous people from coast to coast to coast and in English and in French. Like it was a very ambitious project, yeah. really, really difficult, but also like so meaningful and, and important. Like I remember like I can still remember how incredible it was the first night that the first episode aired and like you know, I was sitting on my couch and I had my Blackberry and my laptop and I was like – 
one of my first times live tweeting and, and being on Facebook, but also just seeing Native people with accents on primetime television sharing our stories. Like, I remember just feeling like, I wish my, my grandma was here to see this. Mm-hmm. I wish other people were here to see this. And it was the first time also that, like, my family really cared about a story that I did. Like, you know, right. I, I've been working in journalism for a long time, and I'd been working on 8th Fire for months. And then after it, it aired, I remember people being like, oh, my God. Eighth Fire, is this what you've been working on? Because people were talking about it. Like, we Indigenous people were finally feeling like we were being represented. Because even though, obviously, there's so much diversity, there are so many shared experiences. And it was the first time we kind of had that. And then so... I pitched that we should create like a permanent space online, like CBC Aboriginal, that was kind of like a place for all of the content that existed at CBC on radio, on TV, and on on From the regions, across different media, and putting the lie to the conception like, oh, there's a limit to how much people want to hear about this stuff in a really interesting way because not only are you discovering that there is a huge audience, but – if the journalism is indigenous-led, if it's by indigenous people, there's a huge indigenous audience for it. And, like, yeah. what a realization of what the CBC could be. But at the beginning, it was kind of like, okay, yes, we can do that. And I think at the time, I was the only full-time reporter, and I had a, a senior producer in Winnipeg. And we had a day each month of Duncan McHugh and Jillian Taylor and Morel de Fiddler and Angela Starrett. Like, we, we could get, like, one day of their month so that they could file something right. for CBC Aboriginal. And you were a founder of this. Yeah, but initially, like, there were times when we were beating whole regions in terms of our page hits, like, Uh you know, like small regions like PEI and New Brunswick, but still, like, for CBC Aboriginal, like, now that doesn't maybe seem that surprising, but at the time, it was like, okay, this is our our initiative, and then it was like, oh, this is actually getting traction, and you guys are finding an audience, And, and it led to everything else. Okay, so we have, like... So sort of like accomplishment to accomplishment. We didn't talk about any of the failures yet. <laughs> well, I certainly was paying close attention to this because this was a, such a booming moment for podcasts. And I was looking enviously at CBC's success with your second series and this incredible proof of concept that, that not only could you tell a story in such depth, not only could you tell an indigenous story, but people around the world would listen to it. And then everyone's waiting for the third season and you're told that there won't be one. And the next thing I heard was they put you on the fifth estate. (laughs) Who did you hear that from? (laughs) I have people. What's the story there? They asked if I would be part of the fifth estate. Um, Such a weird statement about CBC values that, like, if you've got a a, a podcast series that millions of people are listening to, oh, put her on television. Because I think there's still this idea, like, like, TV is the pinnacle. You know, I think CBC has incredible opportunities, but they also have incredible challenges in terms of, like, you know, the the funding they need and they get and the the re- how reliant they still are on, on television and mm-hmm. the advertising from TV. So, I mean, I think that was just the reality. But, but that absolutely was the, the idea that, like, oh, this is a successful podcast. Let's bring that to the fifth estate or let's bring that more to the national or – That's like graduating. Like like that's that's a step up or something. Mm-hmm. But I never saw you on the fifth estate. So. No, I never did that. So what happened? I mean, it's like a, a big, long story. You probably don't want to hear it. What show are you on? This is Canada Land. <laughs> uh, um, yeah. Well, what happened was like I had been asked to join the fifth estate and, you know, it was obviously a change in my job. And so they offered me a new contract. And I remember 
that it was actually less money than I had made the previous year because I had worked so much overtime on on the podcast. And I was like, is this right? Like, how how is this possible? And I said, is this comparable to other hosts on the network? And and it wasn't. I learned and discovered. And then so I asked for them to change that. And, and they said they couldn't. And then I said, I can't be like the only Indigenous reporter who's not making, you know, the same amount as, as other hosts yeah. of, of like flagship investigative shows. And so then I said that I wouldn't do it. And so then I didn't do it. And that was it for how long had you been at the CBC? At that point, I had been at the CBC for about probably like 18 or 19 years. And then that's when I really more seriously started looking outside the CBC for opportunities. I mean, that is an incredible story to an institution that has these stated goals. Somebody who should be celebrating you, you know, they put you on the air, you, you know, interned there, they should be claiming you as like... CBC is like a huge part of who I am as a journalist. Like there's so many, like there's so many problems everywhere. I don't think they're unique to having problems. But also there are so many incredible people who work there and so many yeah. people who like were incredibly generous and who gave me opportunities and who supported my career. Like, I, I have a much shorter history than yours there, but I know that conflict of like I owe so much to this institution that taught me so much and that, you know, gave me these opportunities and put me on the air. And yet I'm almost because you know what it could be or what it ha- what it is at certain moments, the fact that you told – the story of surviving St. Mike's, a Canadian story, putting on the record the most comprehensive journalistic document of a residential school to millions of listeners, earning you a Peabody and Pulitzer Prize, and not for the CBC, where you worked for almost two decades, where you were a founder of their of their Indigenous News Unit, is a huge statement about the CBC. Yeah, I mean, I felt really sad about leaving the CBC, honestly. Like, I was really um, sad to leave when I did in, in a lot of ways. There was a lot of cheering, I think, about the fact that, you know, in the old days, it's like, if you don't like it here, tough shit, there's nowhere else to go. And it was amazing to see when podcasting boomed that there were all these other places where talented audio people could go and tell stories. And this thing that maybe was undervalued by CBC, Gimlet saw value in. Mm-hmm. Somebody, you know... Tell me that you get 17 million downloads. That's worth something, uh, aside from the journalistic value and everything else that this has to contribute. Just from a purely business point, like that, like, are you kidding me? You let that go. So Gimlet hires you, and you go on to do this incredible work there. That was exciting to see. Yeah, it was all of the things. It was exciting and terrifying, and it was all of the things for sure. And then in the cycles that we always witness in this industry, Gimlet is uh, no longer. Yeah, yeah, it's absorbed into into Spotify. Spotify basically gets rid of it. Um, can I ask, how's it going? Is 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 the next one underway? Yeah, we're working on season three of Stolen right now, launching early next year. It's not just Gimlet and Spotify, like, you know. The industry. The industry Mm -hmm. is really going through a lot of challenges right now. And I think, you know, especially for shows like ours, which are limited series and investigative, it's difficult. But I feel like, you know, still committed to wanting to do this work and to, like, getting to – I'm feeling so grateful that – I'm still being supported to do this work in spite of all of the challenges that are going on in the industry right now. 
You talked about how one of your editors at the CBC once asked you, like, oh, like, how many more of these stories can you really do of, of, of tracking down, whether it's one of the thousands missing and murdered and, and, and putting, like— It was, it was like, MMIW-specific that time. Yeah. And it was not, like—I mean, yeah, it was, I think, came from a place of ignorance. Like, like just not understanding, like, not maliciously, mm-hmm. but a feeling like— oh, these stories are all the same and not understanding or realizing like the potential and the, how like each of these stories is actually, it's just an entry point. It's a, it's, yeah. it's like a, a way to get into a bigger story. And, and I have always like, when I, we started doing the podcast and we did the first season and it was really like heavily focused initially on the mystery, on like, you know, we went out there to look into Alberta Williams' unsolved murder, and it was like Marnie Luke, my producer at the time, she and I just like, like really just pulling the yarn and all these twists and turns and coming back and like pitching this podcast that was so focused on like these plot points. And when we were writing, I was writing episode four, and that was the year that Colton Bushi was killed in Saskatchewan. Mm-hmm. And some of my colleagues in Saskatchewan organized this conference because there was so much problematic coverage, so much terrible coverage um, following Colton's death. And they wanted to, like, help journalists do a better job. So I went out for this one day. It was called Reconciliation in the Media. And the keynote speaker in the middle of the day was Marie Wilson, who was one of the commissioners of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, but also a former journalist at CBC for decades. And she, like, she was speaking directly to me, but she was, I felt like giving us all shit for not doing a good enough job as journalists and talking about how it's our job to connect the dots. And if we can't explain the context, like it's the most important thing we need to explain, especially when it comes to Indigenous people and communities. If we can't explain the context in this story, explain it in the next story. Like, And she said, think about it. When did this story actually begin? And I thought about Alberta's story. And I was like, where does Alberta's story begin? Because I'd been talking to her family for months at that point. I realized like, this family had been through so much that this, like losing Alberta, was a part of their bigger family story that that was was much bigger than this unsolved murder. And I thought about how her story, in a lot of ways, didn't even begin with her birth. That she was part of this bigger story. That her family was connected to this bigger story. And so we ended up including like some of the context of residential schools and how sure. it impacted her family in season one, but I feel like that was like this pivotal moment for me where I was like, this can be something bigger than a single thing. This can be like, each season can be like a different facet of life for indigenous people. And I think- Starting from the personal and then broadening out. And then we, we, you know, in in Finding Cleo, it's like, what, 20,000 kids were in the 60s scoop. But like, it's this like, we're gonna look at one. We're going to find one, and we're going to tell the story of this one, what happened to her. And it can be anyone, and, and that's what that one producer didn't understand, is that, like, each story is is like an entry point into a world, a different facet of life yes. and, and understanding that, you know, he, did, he didn't have in that moment. So many thoughts. So, yes, the more you narrow in and focus in on one tells you the whole. Mm-hmm. And then it's just sort of like this um, feat of journalism that you actually did find the answer to what happened to Cleo, and you found the grave. Um, that was Marnie Luke. The whole thing is is engrossing and involving, and it takes it from a statistic, 20,000 to the one, but the one makes you care about the 20,000. So on the one hand, we can say, well, how many more can you – well, each one could tell you about the whole, 
But then there's another ethic at work here as well, which is that each one is a universe unto itself. And, you know, I don't know. I follow this Twitter account where every day they just post another photo of a, of a, of a child who was murdered at Auschwitz. And, like, it's chilling. But each one is this reminder of a universe that was snuffed out. Each one is a reminder. And each one is – it is worthy of, of taking the time to remember all these many years later. And I feel that. And I, I don't even mind that, like – there's an honesty to the ignorance of that question. Well, how many more can you really do? Because it allows us to actually think about and talk about why it is so worthy to tell each of these stories. I think that you you opened up such a rich vein of, of journalism and, and found a purpose of like, this is what journalism can do. And it's so humanizing to focus on each one of these people and take them from a statistic and dedicate, you know, sometimes a year or two of your life to telling their story. And then talking to you right now, I understand a, the kind of journalistic passion that, like, you found such a wonderful format for doing such important work, and you're racing against the clock because the records disappear every mm-hmm. year. And there's so few people doing the work that you're doing, and you have such a rare opportunity that you have funding to do it. And yet, I feel like, and I worry about, I know the toll it takes from having some incredibly limited experience of doing the kind of work that you're doing and that I needed a break after involving myself in long-form investigation and some very tragic coverage of indigenous issues. And I have this privilege to say, that really got to me. Let me do some dumb shit for a while. Like, let me do a story. Let's do a story about a, a cocaine smuggling ring advice magazine with my colleagues here. Or let's, like, I can go and leave this issue and shield myself and protect myself. And I have the privilege of like having fun. I don't feel that it's all on my shoulders at all. I I can kind of, I try to walk into it respectfully, but I have the ability to kind of just self-care, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. Do you ever need that break? Do you feel like you can take that break? Um, I mean, yeah, I think I could probably go and do a different job somewhere else or do different kinds of stories probably at this point if I wanted to, but I don't want to. Like I, I feel like because probably so much of my my life and my career has been people ignoring these stories that now it feels like I have opportunity, I'm having impact, I'm, I'm like I need to like harness this momentum and keep going. Like I, I definitely don't feel like I want to step away. And I think like the premise of that question is like that it's – like a part of my life or something like that, but it encompasses my whole life, you know? Like, this is not just my job. What I'm trying to do is, like, is embedded in in every part of my life, you know? It's, it's about, like, being a Cree girl growing up on a reserve in Saskatchewan and, you know, in the community that I, that I have that, like, this is bigger than a job for me. This, this is kind of part of what it means to be an indigenous woman and and also that like I have a lot of privilege like in that that I have so much privilege in terms of like the the circumstances I'm in now in terms of the opportunities I have now and with that is a responsibility I feel and that's something that you know is very personal and something that I think was ingrained in me because of where I grew up and because of my family and my mother and my grandmother, all my aunties, like everybody has has 
gone through stuff and they keep going and they prioritize family and community and you know you you're trying to do better and and make it better for your kids and and your nieces and nephews and that's what this is to me there's a lot of conversation lately about trauma-informed journalism and your your colleague duncan McHugh has written a book about kind of best practices for covering these issues Mm -hmm. you're working with people who are dealing with some of the worst things that have happened to them in their lives you're asking them to get very deeply involved in things that uh, mm. are very difficult for them. How do you do that in a way that is respectful of the trauma that you are triggering, the trauma that you are asking them to to, to face? Yeah, I mean, that honestly, like, that's something I feel like I'm I'm really still learning about or I have been I have been learning about. And I think that, like, at the beginning, especially when I started reporting on on missing and murdered indigenous women and girls, like, I remember, you know, feeling so guilty about having to ask people about the worst moment in their lives or like and and realizing that, like, like, like with my family, like every family I was talking to, like this was this was not the only difficult or traumatizing thing that they had been through and feeling like I could also see the harm in that. Like I could see how it it deeply affected people. And I, I always wanted to like, you know, check in with people and make sure that they felt like, you know, it's it's about being there in the moment with them and and trying to like ensure that they're okay in the moment and that you're leaving them in a good place and you're checking in with them. And after we did Finding Cleo, I remember, or like while we were doing Finding Cleo, I remember one of the ideas around uh, promoting it on social media was the creation of this Facebook group where, you know, it's like a, a group where people get together and talk about the latest developments in podcasts and like what happened this week and the search for Cleo. And I was like horrified and I was like, no, absolutely not. Like this is their real life. This is not mm-hmm. like only entertainment or like, you know, and and Johnny and Christine or Crystal now, um, she reclaimed her um, biological name um, or like they're here. Like they're they're real people. They're going to be paying attention to this. Like how are they going to feel if, if people, you know, and I remember feeling like so protective of them. And then when the podcast came out, like. They, I think, still engage with every single tweet that has ever been tweeted about uh-huh. Finding Cleo. I could see that this was an empowering thing. You know, at a certain point in the podcast, I feel like part of it was like my search for Cleo. And then we realized, wait a minute, this is not my family. Like, this is Crystal's family, Christine's family. And we should hand the microphone to her and document her quest because this is her search for her sister. And the, the fact that, like, the family felt like they had the agency and were empowered to tell their own story in the way that they wanted to tell it and that they were leading the investigation, it seemed like it was actually this really positive thing for them that they then, you know, could see their story being shared and that it was having impact and that people were appreciating it and that it was this. You know, and I was like, this that was an enlightening moment for me. And then I started actually learning about trauma and learning about PTSD. And I, I did the a fellowship at, at DART at Columbia University. And I learned about like how people heal from post-traumatic stress. And one of the ways is by by telling your story, like mm-hmm. literally the act of telling your story in an environment where you feel safe, in an environment where you have agency, in an environment environment where you have some control. And I realized that that actually can be a healing experience. It doesn't have to be only harmful. There can be harm that comes from it. There can be 
pain that comes from it, but it it is there and it, but it can also be healing. And and I feel like that was honestly like crucial work for me before taking on Surviving St. Michael's because I feel like that's part of what that podcast was for me. It was obviously my our investigation, our journalism, but it was it was part of of my story and reclaiming my own experiences. Connie, thank you. Thank you, Jesse. That's your Canada Land episode. And I recently found out that Rick Mercer, who I always thought of as kind of this very warm and fuzzy guy who pals around with politicians, I found out that he first burst onto the scene as an angry young media critic who said things about a big Canadian newspaper columnist that I would never dare to say. You took it further than I've ever dared. You said, like, this guy needs to die. I didn't say he needs to die. Although I subtitled my one-man show, Charles Lynch Must Die. I think my paraphrasing is fairly accurate. Yeah, I'm going to stand by the way that I put that. Listen, that is from an interview with Rick Mercer that is available only to Canada Land supporters. And the rest of it is spirited and interesting and stuff I've never heard Rick Mercer talk about. Become a Canada Land supporter right now and you can hear that interview and also an extraordinary interview that I did with Margaret Atwood. Our supporters are emailing me. It's interesting. It's thoughtful. It's controversial. Some people are taking issue with things that she said in that interview. If you want to hear that interview right now and my interview with Rick Mercer, become a Canada Land supporter. We need your support. Go to canadaland.com slash join or click on the link in the show notes. Please, you know this, you need to support journalism or very soon there will not be any in Canada. You can email me at jesse at canadaland.com. I read them all. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is canadaland.com. Our senior producer is Bruce Thorson. Additional production and editing from Tristan Capicione. Our managing editor is Annette Ajofo. Editor-in-chief around here is Karen Puglese. I'm your host, Jesse Brown. Our theme music is by SoCold. Our syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. You can listen to Canada Land ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.